It's okay. I'd like to open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll we'll get kicked off. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together this afternoon and to just talk about things of the kingdom. And I pray for every uh, church in here, uh, whether they're from the West Coast or uh, the Bible Belt or Canada or um, the Midwest. And I just pray, Father, that you would bring revival and renewal to each church. Uh, and that, Father, um, you know, despite our best efforts um, and, and things that we think worked, we often take credit for things that belong exclusively to you. And so we pray, Father, for uh, your power to be evident among us in our churches. And uh, so bless our conversation today. Uh, keep us awake. Keep us from uh, getting uh, overtaken by hunger or anything like that. And uh, help us to focus on um, what you might be getting ready to do among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, Resurrecting the Church is our title. And before we kick off, let me just say this. Um, this is my contact information. I, I, this is, I respond to my own emails and stuff. So if you want to get a hold of me, uh, send it there. I'll do my best. Uh, we're in a busy season. Uh, that'll be uh, discussed a little bit as we go through today. But, um, but I've got room essentially for one uh, coaching slot and one church. So uh, it, as far as like helping, uh, if, if, if something you hear you want to just go on an ongoing basis, um, you know, spend some time together talking about anything, whether it's preaching or church conflict stuff or whether it's whatever you want to get better at something. That's kind of how I look at coaching. The consulting thing is we got a dumpster fire going on of some kind, uh, you know, staff issue, a, um, uh, or we're in a financial crisis. We're in, you know, it's a true, more of a triage kind of situation, or you just need some, some uh, more of a mediation kind of a thing, then I'd uh, be happy to help you if I can. And it, uh, so there's my contact info. You now know how to get a hold of me. Uh, I'll do my best to, to uh, you know, respond to you. If, you. if you send something to me while I'm here, you're probably looking at the over-under is probably a week. Because I'll get back and I'll have all the emails from this week that I've got to work through. Um, and then I'll do my best to, to get back with you, okay? Um, <coughs> excuse me. I am not suggesting by the title of the class that the church is dead. Uh, your church may be dead, uh, even though it's living. It's a zombie kind of thing where uh, it's stumbling around and uh, for whatever reason won't die. But it is there's no life in it. Uh, other churches need to die, and by that I don't necessarily mean that they, um, the world would be a better place if they went out of business, but it's more of an internal dying. It's a, we're, we need to ask God for his renewal, we need to repent of some things, we need to pour out our egos, we need to uh, get rid of all of the things that are really causing some of the problems that are, have gone on here for a long time, renew our focus, renew our energy. Um, and then uh, some of us need to, you know, so that's a kind of dying that leads to resurrection. It's hard to resurrect something that isn't dead. So whether uh, you need to die that way, you know, what I'll call um, intentional dying, we're going to intentionally die. Or it's, and, it's, and it can be an external or an internal reality. Or if it's an unintentional form of dying, meaning you're dying because you've got a particular kind of disease, spiritually speaking, that is killing your church, killing you personally. Um, every year that I'm here, I spend the bulk of my time, it takes me, uh, all the time that it takes is for me to get out of my car and to hang out around the fountain. And there are ministers and elders from all over this country that are suffering in a very real way, internally, spouses of ministers and elders uh, that are discouraged or they're 
Uh, they're feeling a sense of hopelessness, which is what this event is about. You know, calling it Harbor is kind of like, hey, all right, we're getting a break from the waves. We're going to circle the the uh, the wagons a bit uh, and take a look at uh, what we can do. And, and this class is really about helping give you some strategies that will help you make decisions about what kind of death you need to go through. Every church, including the one that I'm uh, in leadership in, needs to die, and it needs to be a, almost a daily reoccurrence. Okay, John 12, 24, he's obviously, I don't think, necessarily talking about this in context, but I do think it applies. John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Things that are not dead tend to not bear as much fruit. <coughs> Life comes from death in a lot of ways. And so every church needs to die. Now, I, I told you at the beginning, there's two different kinds of death, if you will. There's the unintentional and the, and the intentional. And I want to start with the unintentional uh, death cycle that goes on in churches. And this is probably what brought a good chunk of you here. I won't ask you to identify yourself, but um, it's definitely um, something that I would take a look at. Almost in my experience working with churches, I've probably done a formal consultation with north of 100 churches. Uh, obviously, I've been in ministry myself as an intern or a, uh, a leader for uh, north of 20 years, probably coming up on 25, actually. Um, uh, what, it usually breaks down into one of these three categories. What's causing it is hidden sin, leadership meltdown, or chronic reactivity, and they're all woven together. Okay, So in essence, it's a big ball of mess, and if you were going to pull it apart, it, this is the trinity of death okay in churches hidden sin is um you've got a preacher who's got uh, a serious moral problem that's going on the elders have a serious uh, sin problem going on amongst themselves uh, there's sin in the church that's gone unchecked it could be gossip slander or you've developed a chronic condition that is displeasing in the sight of god uh, and often it's not always out in the open where you can look at it and say oh it's clearly that often it's hidden so if you look back and you, you think about the story of Achan in the Old Testament or you think about Ananias and Sapphira or you look at these other cases where you have something going on that's hidden that ends up coming to the light uh, then all of a sudden uh, you know. So, so sometimes when you look at your church and you go hey we're not functioning as well as we could or it's just not we're trying everything we can it's just not working sometimes uh, you probably won't be able to figure it out until that Go, is dealt with. Um, so I've been <clears throat> in um, leadership situations where, um, you know, a, a staff person was not treated well on the way out the door. They were they were very mean to the person, very stingy with their, uh, rather than generous with how they sent them out. Uh, they said some mean things about the person as they went, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And then they moved on like it like it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. But see, God sees that stuff. And so there needs to come to a point where the church recognizes, hey, we need to make ourselves blessable. And if God wanted to bless us with something, what would it take for us to be blessable? And so hidden sin becomes, I mean, huge. And, and I've been in churches where they've covered up uh, abuse, uh, covered up, uh, um, you know, financial sin of some kind. Uh, they've covered up a wide variety of different <laughs> things. And often they don't even know that they're doing it. That's how hidden it is. It's like uh, when the scriptures talk about your conscience being seared as with a hot iron. Um, it's hard. To, you can get to a point where you just can't separate right from wrong anymore. Uh, that what was once very wrong to you now is kind of wrong. Or it's, it's, a, it's a forgivable kind of thing. But don't underestimate the importance of trying to live as righteously as possible in the sight of God. Because when it comes to resurrection, the only thing that brings Jesus out of the tomb uh, is not strategy. 
this divine power. And so without that, uh, a church is going to die. It, it, you cannot be victorious as a church without God's blessing. It's impossible. And so you can put all the, I could, I could throw, um, you know, if he was still alive, I could put Billy Graham in your church and, and, and you'd be wondering why nobody was coming to Jesus because <laughs> the divine power is gone. I mean, it's just not there. So take a look at that, okay? If you're looking at unintentional death diseases that cause these things, okay? Leadership meltdown. This is where you have dissension in leadership. Elders, preachers, uh, internally the staff, uh, things like this. And again, this often, the root of that is here. You have somebody on the staff team who's covering something up. They're not, uh, or somebody in the eldership that's covering something up. And uh, the symptom then comes out in disunity. The straining to keep it secret causes tension in the room. And frankly, because God's kind of taken his hand off of the leadership, Satan has a field day and he just goes in and people start fighting with each other. Um, I'm sure your meetings are, are smooth and happy occasions, but in a lot of churches, man, meetings are just the seventh circle of hell. They're absolutely terrible. They're long. They have no point. Uh, they're bitter. Um, and, and people fight with each other and say really unkind things, uh, at questioning each other's motives all the time. It's just a dysfunctional uh, trap. Um, when our church went to go get a loan recently with a, <clears throat> with a, uh, a group called the Solomon Foundation, which they have some reps here, I'd highly recommend them to you if your church ever needs to borrow money or you're looking for a place to put your money to invest. They're not paying me for that. I'm just telling you, it's a great place to go. Okay? Um, but their CEO was talking to us, and he goes, you know, the reason that we don't look at your financials, uh, we do look at them, but it's not like a bank would look at them. He says, our two biggest risks in lending you money have nothing to do with money. He goes, the two biggest are moral failure in the pulpit. So imagine a church gives you a loan for $5 million, and then the preacher, it comes out that the preacher's been having an affair, right? Preacher's blown out now. People leave, giving drops, da-da-da. Number one risk, moral failure in the pulpit. Number two, he used this term, leadership meltdown. That you get out from the shore, and you've borrowed all this money, you're trying to make progress, and then the leadership gets completely... Um, at odds with each other, and you just enter that meltdown sequence, okay? Um, so that is something that's very closely linked to, to this third one, which is what I would call chronic reactivity. Uh, this is an anxiety-driven uh, way of doing leadership. So <clears throat> uh, I would just suggest to you, I know that we don't like to say this out loud, but guys like Edwin Friedman and others would back me up on this. People and your church are not fundamentally rational. They are emotional, not rational. Okay? And so that is why, for instance, when you decide that your church wants to include women more in the church, in the ministry of the church, and you do a one-year class on women in leadership of the church, it does no good because it is not fundamentally a rational issue. It is an emotional issue. Uh, you can take almost any subject that you want and throw it in there. Now, people will say it's rational. Um, but that's why things that you fight about in church are not usually very rational. And you go, how can they possibly think that moving the communion table is that big of a deal? Well, because it's not a rational issue. It's an emotional issue. Um, it is, and so the more you can embrace that as a reality, the better off you're going to be at trying to, and elderships and preachers and staff teams are the same way. So you can sit there and say, hey, this ought to fit together. This ought to work on paper. And you can sit there and look at it on paper, and it should work. Everything's all the ducks are in a row. Everybody says they believe the same things, and why can't we get along? Because people are not fundamentally rational. 
Okay? Neither are churches and systems. Uh, so we tend to, for instance, try to change things through education. That's why we have the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. Okay? Um, when you're trying to make a change, uh, I'll just take uh, the role of women in the church. LGBT issues, all right? Uh, the, the heart will beat the head every time. Every time. Okay? So when you get there, and that's why, for instance, when you're trying to raise money for something, and your church is trying to, you have this great strategic plan, and you're trying to fund that. Why somebody can come in and offer a child sponsorship program, and, they, and people give to that, and they don't give to your initiative, even though this would make a much wider impact, because you can rationally see it does. And you're passionate about it. Problem is, they're not. They're passionate about kids. Their heart is there, and the heart wins and beats the mind every time. Now, I don't think that's necessarily something to be feared, and the heart and the mind aren't mutually exclusive, right? We want to marry those things together. But what I'm doing is just simply making a case that when it comes to unintentional death, often the root of it is what I call chronic reactivity, okay? That, that we're so full of anxiety and fear that we make our decisions rooted in what causes the least pain, uh, what, uh, what is so-and-so upset about, um, and what can we do that will produce the, give us the least risk, um, anxiety-produced kinds of things. Part of the reason that you're here is because the title of the class said Resurrecting the Church, and you feel like your church is dead, and you're looking for answers, right? So it drove you to the class. Anxiety can be a, a good thing when it's, when it's harnessed in a, in a particularly healthy direction, but it's a complete disaster when it's not, and it kind of spills all over the place. <clears throat> Uh, churches often get paralyzed by the inability to tolerate pain uh, of conflict or failure. It produces often uh, flat earth thinking because you have no real priorities because your priority is avoiding pain. So when you have a ministry or uh, you know, something that you're trying to do, you can't really let that go out in front. You can't really act on it because as soon as you do, um, everything changes. I was on a flight. Uh, I got on a Southwest flight last Sunday. I was on my way to Las Vegas for a pastor gathering. Can you believe that? Um, there's a church in Las Vegas that baptized 2,100 people last year. Okay, a Central Christian Church in Las Vegas. Uh, I was getting ready to go to a pastor's gathering there. I was starving. I preached, and I hadn't had anything since breakfast at 7 o'clock. It was about 2.30 in the afternoon. I get on the plane, and I'm waiting for the peanuts to come down. It's only a 50-minute <laughs> flight, and I'm like, give me the peanuts and the pretzels. I just need something in my stomach. She comes down the aisle with the... Uh, peanut cart, and I was hoping often they have the, the tubs, and they'll just let you on Southwest, just take as many as you want. That's what I was hoping for. She didn't have that. She just had a single little thing of, of, uh, of peanuts, gave me one bag. But to me, that was like, that was gold. It was, it was all I needed. And I opened that bag, and I put a few in my hand, and then the passenger sitting next to me wanted to have a conversation. So I was chewing on my peanuts, and then suddenly somebody takes the bag out of my hand. Oh. And I look up, and it's the flight attendant. And she goes, we need those back. <laughs> <I'm> like, what? <laughs> Why would you need them back? They're already open. I'm already eating them. And she says, somebody on the flight has a peanut allergy. Oh. And so they have to go back, and they pick up all the peanuts out of the, out of the plane, and they hand out pretzels to everybody. Okay? Now, I thought to myself, and in my brain, I'm thinking, okay, people have dog allergies on the plane, and you let dogs on the plane? Because somebody needs a support dog? without thought of if they need the dog, should they really be on an airplane leaving their house if they need them that bad? But that's a whole other subject. I thought to myself, so you always orient around the neurosis, right? It's, it's somebody, one guy has a peanut allergy, so nobody gets peanuts. 
uh, give me the peanuts back, in fact. And so tell me if this sounds like a leadership conundrum. The elders get up, preacher gets up, says, hey, guys, we really want to be more um, intentional about reaching the lost. And so you start something new. Somebody has a problem with it. Guess what? The peanuts get picked back up again because somebody has an allergy. Okay? They have a, they have a peanut allergy. So um, that's what I mean by reactivity, right? You're always, boom, this happened, boom. And, and you're never intentional in moving toward your highest priorities because your highest priority is to respond to your anxiety and alleviate anxiety from whomever it is. So churches, I would argue, <clears throat> need baptism too. And I'm going to come back to that one because that is the neurosis du jour Amen. for the time we're living in. And it's not, it's not even just in the church. We are bringing this, preachers particularly, are bringing this in via the pulpit now in the name of relevance and making sure we're addressing the issues of the day. We are the ones that are helping inject our churches and leadership teams with anxiety. Okay, And we call it relevance. But in reality, it's us dumping our own anxiety out in church. I'll get back to that. All right, so... Intentional death is when you die to yourself. This is when we say, guys, we got to do something different. We need to get before God on our hands and our knees. We need to pray. We need to pour our hearts out before God. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to confess what needs to be confessed. Um, and we need to say, God, we want to have your priorities. And we don't care what the cost is. We're going to do what we can. I mean, we're willing to tolerate whatever pain we have to tolerate in order to see this done. It is a dying to self. There's another kind, which would be we're dying to multiply. So this is a case. If you've got a church, 15 people, building that's worth $5, $10 million if you're on the West Coast, and, and you're saying we think that in the spirit of the parable of the talents, we are not doing the most that we could with what we have. And so we're going to intentionally die so that we can multiply our influence. Um, sidebar here, churches of Christ in California alone are sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate. In churches of, of less than 20 people. Okay. And that's not an exaggeration. Okay. That, that's probably low. It's probably north of a billion if you start adding it together. Okay. There are guys like David Schultz here who knows a lot more about this kind of thing and, and what the actual pulse of things is. Um, but I, I've, I've been in churches that are meeting in kitchens that are sitting on, on a $10 million building. And you think about the good that could happen there, right? So there's an intentional death that could take place that allows for multiplication. It's the seed falling to the ground, dying, and bearing more fruit. Okay. A quick example. Our church right now is um, <clears throat> uh, we, were, we inherited a church building from, uh, some of you know this story, from an Christian, independent Christian church that we were renting from on Sunday nights. We weren't paying any rent, so I guess we were just there. Um, and we were meeting there on Sunday nights. They were, they were going through all of these. Okay. And they were arguing with each other. They were down to about 40 or 50 people. We were there on Sunday nights. We were running 40 or 50 people at the time. And, um, and they eventually, through a, a sequence of miracles, decided that they would be better off just tossing us the keys and dissolving. And so they did. Now, at our point of life, that created a problem for us because we didn't have money to pay the bills on the building, right? We barely stayed afloat as it was, et cetera, et cetera. But it turned out to be an enormous blessing. Okay, well, now... We then come back and we go, okay, so at this point of our life, we just turned seven uh, years old. Our church did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Okay, what's the next chapter look like for New Vintage? Uh, what do we need to do? And given that we've been given this amazing resource by God, inside of California, church buildings are 
impossible uh, to, for a new church that's growing to buy. It was given to us, free and clear, no debt. Um, it was falling apart, but there's no debt on it. Um, so we, we took it and we started dreaming through this. And, and, and I, I want to caveat what I'm about to show you with our church, and my wife's in here, she can vouch for this, is not perfect. <laughs> Do not follow our example, okay? <laughs> in this way. Do not follow our example. This is a sequence of miracles, okay, that turned into this. So what we've decided to do is uh, sell our building, and what we're going to do is buy some buildings and actually build a complex for the use of our community that we're going to use on Sundays and whenever we need to worship. But we're building it not as a church building. We're building it as a mixed-use arts complex, okay? So it's going to be we're moving from our little suburban neighborhood context, 13 blocks, same street, but down the, the, the way um, onto the main drag of the city. We're buying an abandoned movie theater. It's been shut down for 30 years. And a ratty furniture store that's all about to be condemned. Um, and so we're going to do that. But the idea behind it is simply we are opening our arms to the community. Uh, and we're, we're only going to use it 10 or 15% of the time. Okay? Uh, and and it's, a, it's just an enormous... Uh, basin and towel thing for the city. That's all we're trying to do. We're not going to make any money off of it. Um, but we feel like God blessed us with it. So this is our chance to bless the city with it. So I'll show you a picture of what it looks like. And if you saw the condition of our current building on the inside and the out, it's not terrible, but it's not, not great either. It's going to be hard for us to realize our mission, what we're doing. So I'm going to do this quick and I'm going to move on just so we don't take up all of our time. All right. Here's, here's what that's going to look like when it's done. This is two buildings. Now, I want you to just think about this. They're doing a 24-hour cafe restaurant right there on the corner. This right here is the main street of our city. Um, these marquees all change. So, you know, our church ad will change. Um, there'll be a, a dance studio up here on the second floor. You're going to be able to see dancing going on the windows, actually, when you drive by down the street. Bench theaters over here on this, and I can't show you, I'm not going to show you the whole. Uh, these are storyboards. They may look very different when it's done, but uh, you know that that LED screen in the middle that shows the Lion King. That's uh, Christian Youth Theater. We'll be putting that. That's a kids um, Christian uh, thing using the building for for their productions and their practices and everything, and as well as a sequence of other arts partners. Now that can change. We are allowed to put our stuff on here, right? So I want you to picture what it could be like for us to just go in there. And I, I told our church, I said, look, we worship a God who is extremely um, generous and he welcomes people and he's very hospitable. And we need, to, uh, we need to practice radical hospitality. And we've been given generosity from uh, the hand of God through a sequence of miracles and it's our job to show that to other people. And uh, so that's the spirit behind doing it. Now, I want you to think about a church in which trying to do something like that where the leadership was incredibly at odds with itself. Um, you're going to say, what? Um, <clears throat> after we gave you, I mean, some of the people that gave us the first facility are still with us, right? They could rise up and be angry and storm the gates and um, you're going to do what? And we out of this and blah, 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 blah. Um, so far, um, I know the demons are waiting for us. They'll come out down the road when we actually start moving. But um, right now it's been really good and really healthy. Leadership, uh, when we made the decision to sell this week, um, we did it over pancakes. And uh, it, was, it was cordial. 
and we've been meeting together with high degree of trust for you. You know, uh, we've had no serious conflicts in seven years, none, not in a board meeting ever. Now we've had our little disagreements of opinion or whatever, but we've never had one of those meetings that you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Brass knuckles. I'm going to tear your face off of your head if you, you don't get in line here, whatever kind of meetings, okay? And what it does is it releases energy. Energy. Don McLaughlin, energy. <laughs> I'm just going to put all the points on here. We're going to walk through these over the, today and the, and the rest of the time we're here. So if you want your church to step out of the grave, all right? You die first, pick one of the ways. If you don't die intentionally, you're going to die unintentionally. But you will die. All churches got to die. When you step out of the grave, and feel free to do this and, and whatever, okay? I'm going to talk about just some ways. Some of these are strategies. Some of these are philosophical, okay? I'm going to start up here because that's where it begins and ends. Divine power, okay? If God is for you, who can be against you? And if God is against you, you are a dead church walk-in. There's nothing you can do to succeed. And even if you're able to succeed in the eyes of the world, you will be an utter failure in the sight of God. It's that simple. So it begins there, and when you have God, uh, God's hand on you, I mean, you've, we've all read the scriptures in here. We can go through and see all of the different miracles that God does among his people, uh, whether it's Pentecost or parting the Red Sea or whatever. God is with you. And so I take you back to Moses' disclaimer when uh, God is so fed up with the Israelites that he says, I'm not going any further with you because I'm afraid I'll kill you. If, and, and Moses says, well, if you're not going to go with us, then we're not going to the promised land. And he says to God, you know, look, your, your, your presence is, is the whole ballgame. He gets it. Moses gets it. And so he says, look, if it means passing on your presence in order to go to the promised land, we're not going. We prefer the desert with you than the promised land without you. This should be, that scripture should be on every, uh, in every leadership room across America and every church in America. And just as a reminder that if you don't have that, you can do without these other things. That you cannot do without. Amen. Okay, you can't do without it. That is prerequisite. Just put it in bold, italics, and, and whatever else you want to do, Okay. <clears throat> So, uh, hidden sin, if you want to release divine power, repent of it, get rid of it, confess it. Provide the atmosphere in which that can happen without people fearing utter death, okay? Uh, or or if, if you have to part ways with people or whatever, you've got to be holy inside of God. That doesn't mean you can be perfect. What it means is when you recognize that you've sinned or that Satan's getting a foothold, you deal with it. Because you just understand that being blessable to God is everything. Um... Again, uh, here's the other thing. You know, I, maybe I'll use the uh, imagery of the parable of the soils where Jesus talks about all the different <clears throat> soil types. You know, some seed lands here, lands there, lands there. Some falls on the rocky path. Some falls, you know, in these different areas. And they, uh, you know, they grow. Some grow for a little bit, get choked out by the cares of the world. Some doesn't grow at all. Uh, some because it's shallow and some uh, flourishes. Okay. So there's different things that are going on. I want you to compare that to kind of the concept of wildflowers. Well, you don't really know how they got there. They just happen, right? It's, it's, um, you can look throughout the New Testament particularly, and people are always asking, how did that happen? What just happened? How did that happen? 
And that's the kind of, of fruit that gets born when you've got that first one. If you don't have that, then you, the other one, but you, you're praying for wildflowers as you plant and reap and sow. So it keeps it from being all about you, because it's a good reminder. So you pray, pray for wildflowers spiritually. God gives a harvest that we stand around and go, we don't even know how that happened. We don't, I have no idea. You know, I don't know how, how you know, this and that and the other happens. So that you actually have to acknowledge that God is, is among you. Uh, I'm going to say uh, here, stepping out of the grave, know thyself. This is uh, where you stop allowing everybody other than you to, to tell you who your church has to be. If you're not doing this, then, uh, you know, you know, then that's it. Or so uh, Uncle Ernie and Aunt B are on two different sides of the auditorium, and Aunt B thinks the church ought to do this. Uncle Ernie says the church ought to do this. And so, again, because you're reactive, right, you're, you're being tossed to and fro, but you have no idea who you want to be as a church. And there's a certain baseline of things that every church ought to want to be, every church ought to want to be close to God and help people grow in Christ and, and, uh, and, and, and do certain things. But, but churches do have different kinds of flavor. Uh, we use we use a, a lot of wine imagery at uh, New Vintage, hence the name. Uh, the name comes from "I'm vine, you are the branches." Okay, um, and and if you're in Christ, you will bear much fruit. And apart from Him, you can do nothing. And teaching that, hammering that nail all the time. Well, then part of it is, you know, um, I don't know. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're a wine drinker, but for those of us that are, um, there, there's a real beautiful um, when you dig into the whole process of winemaking, everything way that. Uh, different grapes take different amounts of time to grow. They need different climates. They taste differently, obviously. They look different in the, gra- in the glass. You can hold it up and, and say, oh, okay, that's a, you know, that's a Pinot Noir or that's a, you know, a Cabernet Sauvignon or something like that. Um, the churches are kind of the same way. They, uh, you might have two Bible-believing churches who are both evangelistic. This one does it through one-on-one discipleship. I'm sitting across the table from you in a coffee shop uh, studying the Bible with you. This other one... They're great at supporting evangelistic causes that find a way, you know, they're, they're external, but they're still helping lead people to Jesus or things like that, right? So they got different, different flavors. So there's a baseline evangelism, certain things that every church ought to have. But beyond that, there's that secret sauce that makes your church what it is. Why are you specifically there? And if you can't answer that question, that's, that's you've got to be able to answer that question. Stop everything. Just stop the presses and figure that one out. Okay, what is it that makes us different or unique? I told our church the reason we're doing that particular building in that way. Why we why we've come to that conclusion is because we think we're one of the few churches who could who could actually do that in our city. And the reason is we're newer, so we have a lot of people who've just come to Christ, so they don't have all the hangups with non-Christians that a lot of church people do. So they're in there and they're watching a a, a play. And, um, or, or they're watching a film, and, and there's a bad word that comes out on the film that the whole their whole world doesn't fall apart. Mm-hmm. Because yesterday they watched a lot worse movies than that, right? And they they're not they're not shaken by it that way. They have a lot of non-Christian friends still. So before they lose all their relationships with unchurched people, we want them to leverage those and get them in there. You know, invite your friends and, and do all of that. Our people are notoriously. Uh, open-handed they're very generous and they're very um we, it's a pretty extroverted place okay that building is an introvert's nightmare okay <laughs> from the minute you get within 10 feet of that place you're on 
and the community's watching, right? That's the downside of welcoming everything to the community. Now you know, you're interacting with them all the time. Your people skills got to be better. You've got to you've got to understand how to do hospitality and be generous all the time. The barista in the coffee shop has to be hospitable. The people mopping the floors have to be hospitable. Everybody's got to understand what we're trying to do, okay? And there's got to be there's that there's that identity that says this is what we're going to be about. That needs to be in every eldership and preacher's mind, and your church needs to know what it is. Okay. Uh, we're willing to grow some more slowly so that our people grow healthy and strong. Uh, we're willing to grow more slowly so that our leadership team is strong and healthy. That's who we are. That doesn't mean that's who you are. Some of you guys are like rocket fuel. Hey, let's grow as fast as we can. Others of you are just like, you know what? We're just people of the word. We do Bible study extremely well. And that's what sets us apart. There are a lot of churches that do that well, though. So I'd ask you to take it to another level and, and be able to put it in a sentence. This is what makes us unique or different. Free up energy. Uh, most churches meet way too often. Okay, leadership teams meet way more often than they have to. Uh, are way, uh, they meet for way too long. They are involved in too much. And they waste energy like their church is a virtual nuclear power plant when in reality it's more like a 9-volt battery. Um, and that's not, it's our church too. Uh, people are, don't, by the time that they start engaging their church, they have used up a lot of their personal energy. And I realized that a lot of my energy was going to, uh, if you can get into a leadership paradigm, and on a team where you, you can minimize conflict, and I don't mean by keeping the peace, I mean by having people who are all committed to a common vision and are spiritually and healthy emotional people on that team. Uh, it's amazing how much energy you have. Um, I, 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 in times past, I think I've probably used 80%, literally 80% of all my energy just on leadership meetings. And that sounds, or drama. Resulting therefrom. Now, some of you are going, no way, that's not possible. Ask your preacher. They'll tell you. Um, I mean, there'll be only 80% is what they'll probably say. <laughs> that's like most of my, I mean, preaching gives me energy. Working with people gives me energy. Those just are, are brutal. So we, our, our team meets once a month. Uh, we meet uh, in a, over a meal. We eat together. Um, you know, we're going to have to meet more often uh, here for this next stretch, and that's okay. I'm not afraid of that because the relational tissue is there, and at least right now God's granting us a really nice period of, of peace. Um, so we'll probably do one for that's only prayer and then another that's only business. We'll pray first and all that, the obligatory prayer at the beginning and the end, but it, we want to separate those so that usually if business and spiritual spiritual stuff get into a meeting together, business wins. And we don't want that to get crowded out. So it's easier to just take a bucket and say, that meeting's just nothing. We don't do business there. This is about, we're going to pray for the Joneses. We're going to pray for God's favor on our church. We're going to pray for churches around us we know are struggling. We're going to pray for our enemies. We're going to pray for things that we think would, would be a, a huge blessing uh, to God. Next, and again, we're going to take all these and drill, drill deeper. Okay, so I'm coming back to every one of these tomorrow, and we're gonna, I'm going to tell stories. This is more just getting the principles out there in front of you. All right, so we picture this like a, 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 we're drilling for oil. So we're going to circle and then kind of go deeper uh, tomorrow. Free up focus. <clears throat> now, I'm going to say this, and this is um, going to be counter to, to um, 
what a lot of the other people on the program are going to say. And I love them, and they're smart guys, and they're probably a lot better leaders than I am. But this is my opinion. Um, the kind of focus that is needed today is very strategic and intentional about avoiding the controversies of the day. Um, going back to the causes of unintentional death, this is way up on the list. Churches that are irrelevant in mission, but trying to be relevant by preaching to the events of our current time, are trading cancer for emphysema. They are saying we are going to be relevant um, by rolling the New York Times out every Sunday. And what it does is it takes an already anxious church and uh, gives them an overdose, in my opinion. And you can see those churches because their people are online all the time talking about nothing but what happens. And I find myself asking, in two years, let's say that the current president gets uh, voted out of office, what, what's going to be left of your church? Like, what are you guys going to stand for then? <laughs> You're going to have to reshape your entire identity and mission. And, and I mean, your whole, your whole, you don't have anything left. Uh, or, or even how you handle issues of the day. Okay, I, I'm going to give you an example. And again, I'm not sure this was the most perfect way okay, to do it. I'm just saying this is how we tried to handle it. There's sometimes you just can't avoid it. Uh, you, you've got to say something or pray or whatever. We typically, if something goes down that's a major Vegas shooting, because we're, we're pretty close to Vegas, our people go to Vegas a lot, um, and something of that magnitude or whatever, you, we get up and we mention it for 60 seconds, and we have a time of prayer. And we stay fairly mainstream with what we know God would say. I'm not up there talking about, see, this is why we have to get guns out of people's hands, or whatever, because you know what? When I pray, nobody's paying attention. And you know what? Nobody's focused on God's involvement here. And they're going to leave church that morning three times as anxious as they were when they got there. And then when I come to them and say, hey, guys, we're going to relocate the church building. You know what happens? Kaboom! Because I gaslighted it by feeding them anxiety. Uh, so when we did, a, a, the, 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 I think it was a year or two ago, when the Dallas police officer shooting took place. Okay. Let me say this to preachers. For God's sake, okay, do not get online and respond to it within the first 30 minutes when it happens. Amen. I don't care what you say. Here's why. That was a great example. Where a lot of my colleagues ran into a burning building because they saw the first thing and they got online and and then what happens later, right? Then, then you have the killing of the police officers. And now every cop in your church has a problem with you. A big one, a profound one. And now you can go, oh, yeah, by the way, um, everything I just said about the police, uh, that forget that. I love them all. I mean, you, right? Just give it time. Don't be an anxious responder to whatever happens. I promise, and I know the pressure is on you. I know people put the microphone in your face as soon as it happens. I got people in church texting me. What, are we going to talk about this on Sunday or whatever? Maybe is my response, usually. Um, am I going to do that? So when that particular incident happened, that was one where... We felt like our church had a unique opportunity to speak toward racial reconciliation because uh, my wingman at the time was Rudy Haygood. Uh, if you haven't met Rudy, you've seen him, I guarantee you, walk around <laughs> campus. He's an enormous African-American guy. He and I have been friends for many, many years. And uh, he grew up, both grew up in L.A. and have um, a lot of relational um, tissue there to build from. And so we just... For that particular Sunday, we just called time out. I bailed the sermon I was going to preach. We've only done this one time. 
Again, I want you to think about all of the different uh, incidents that have come up. Parkland, Vegas, 9-11. Uh, I mean, you just go down the uh, uh, um, Connecticut. Right? I mean, it just happens all the time now. I just, we canceled the sermon. I, got, I had him meet me at a, at a, a uh, restaurant on Friday night. And I said, hey, what if you and I got up there and we just sat up in front of the church and we did an unscripted conversation? You tell your story, I'll tell mine, uh, and um, and we'll try to model for the church what it's like to have a conversation like this amongst friends. Let them overhear it. That's what we did. Put the chairs up in front. Necessary caveats up front. This does not mean that these are not issues and that you have no right to be upset. It just means that we have a chance as, as Christians to role model how unity in Christ trumps anger uh, because of things that go on, because Satan had a field day. And so we got up there, and we sat in chairs. Uh, I think it's still online. I could probably send it to you if you want. We got up there, and we just had a conversation. And he talked, and it was great, because the church loved Rudy, right? So when he talks, they're not looking at him, like, on guard. They, they love him. And same for me, right? So we get up there, and, and there was a really poignant moment where, <clears throat> you know, we're talking about uh, things, and he shares he's got a 16-year-old son, and he's scared for him to get his driver's license. I mean, stuff like that. I mean, so that goes a lot further, those things, than getting up in the pulpit and yelling at the church what you think they feel, right, as opposed to simply showing them. And I can get up then and affirm what he says. I grew up in Long Beach, California. Okay? I, I, I had people banging on the hood of my car during the riots as I was driving home from Long Beach Poly, where I went to high school. And I was told, you have to leave. If you're white, you have to leave the school during baseball practice. Practice is canceled. Get in the car, go. And MLK and PCH, Long Beach, driving down, banging on the hood. 61 people were killed, you know, um, white and non-white, Korean shop owners, all sorts of people. It's a mess, right? Now, I can get up, and there are different ways you can do it, but one will heighten the anxiety of the church, and one addresses the heart of the church. And I asked him, I go, I go, I go, can you, if you had one thing, that you would want as an African-American guy, people, uh, <clears throat> white Christians to understand, what would it be? And then we flipped it. And I said, I'm going to try to be Joe White guy. And I said, um, what, what would Joe White guy, I'm trying to represent, I'm not representative of everybody, well, what would be one thing that, uh, that um, the average white Christian, as I understand them and experience life, would want the African-American community to understand? And we said it. And you know what happened? And our wives got up there with it. We held hands in the air. Church circled up. We prayed. And we went home. And they left feeling more unified than if I had gotten up there trying to be prophetic. You all notice how many prophets we have in the Bible? You only have one at a time. We, we, we got them everywhere now. I mean, especially like 25-year-old bloggers. I don't, I, how he bestows the gift of prophecy on 25-year-olds is beyond me. It's amazing. But you just sit there and I go, we have a choice, and are we going to use this as a way to divide the church, or can we role model for them how this is supposed to happen? You know? Um, and let them watch. Two people love each other, and this is why the church matters in times like this. It's not just so we can get angry. Um, and there are times, I'm not saying there's not moments for the church to do that. Okay? I want to be clear on that. What I'm saying is, these days, everybody thinks every moment is like that. And so you're being jerked around by, by that. And so that focus, um, 
Now, people will say, well, you can't put your head in the sand. All right? Let me tell you something. Why is it, why is, you can't avoid real life? If I hear that one more time, I'm going to just, why is negative stuff real and good news fake? Like, where do we get that? Like, you know, no, the real life is this. Uh, and you, you ever hear somebody talk badly about their spouse? Well, you don't know what they're really like. Yeah. You know, and we talk about the world the same way. You know, uh, you know, hey, you guys got to know what the world's really like, and, and that it's burying your head in the sand to consume less media, for instance. No. What if that's pulling your head out? What if putting your head in the sand is to bury yourself in in something um, that's that's not healthy for you? Now, I'm not saying I'm, in my line of work, I got to stay up on what's going on, so I have my ways of, of trying to do that. But I just realized, and my wife will tell you, I used to get out of bed just mad in the morning. I was tense. And I just said, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to, one time a day, I'm checking the news. That's it. I'm limiting it. I have, you know, uh, a very streamlined way of going through that, so I, I'm aware of what's going on around me. But I don't dwell on it. I don't, I don't. Uh, you know, and if something big goes on and I've got to dig into it deeper, more deeply, then, then that's what we do. Um, but what ends up happening is you get into a situation like this where um, things are going on. And the reason that it's hard to, to, to keep your churches focused is because those things change every day. So if you're unequivocally focused on trying to, to uh, deal with the issues of the day, then what are you going to do tomorrow? Uh, and, and where is it exactly? There is a difference. They're not mutually exclusive, but they are different. Praising Christ crucified, and um, and say social justice, they fit together really well, but they're not the same. So you have to be able to go. Okay, this is our core mission. This is how we live it out through channels of of doing the right thing for different groups, especially people on the margins or or people that get overlooked or people that are treated poorly in our society. We we have the chance to be a big brother to them and make sure they get a voice. Nobody's going to listen to us, though. Um, or they'll listen to us and say, great, they're going to co-opt the church and make you an activist partner instead of listening, again, to what you have to say about Jesus because they don't care. As opposed to saying, we're doing this because we love Jesus and Jesus cares about people on the margins. And so the way that we do it is different. Okay? Um, I would say the other thing, just as a side note, it does allow you to keep a big tent uh, for your people. You don't exclude people by politics. You know, get up there and say you shouldn't do this or you should do that or whatever. Um, and so when you're addressing them, really try to do it um, theologically. You know, we, we had Earth Day that just came and went, and I'm in San Diego and got a lot of granola eaters in our church, and, uh, as I call it. So we, you know, I tried to do it. I happened to be talking about uh, God as creator on that day. It was just fortuitous. It happened to be on the same week. And I just told him, I said, guys, do you understand that? <clears throat> I go, there's, there's, and I tried to use it as a teaching moment. And I said, guys, there's two ways that you can look at this, right? One is earth justice. It's, uh, there's an ad running around San Diego, the earth needs a good lawyer. What are you talking about? It's like, the earth is an inanimate object. It doesn't need a lawyer, okay? And not everything is a, a crusade. The Christian looks at it and says, God created this. Uh, and if the heavens declare the glory of God and creation actually declares the glory of God, then when I care for the earth, I am taking the duct tape off the mouth of creation and I'm allowing it to speak. And when I destroy it, I'm putting duct tape on its mouth. You know, so an act of gardening actually becomes, and your neighbor comes over and says, wow, what a beautiful garden, you know. Um, 
So instead of going the route of how dare we melt the earth with our human toxins or whatever, and then now all of a sudden half the church is at odds with each other, bring God into the picture and say, and gent- do it gently, fruit of the spirit, you know, and, and try to, um, and to do that. And then I think, just remember that there's still, uh, the, the business that we're in has to do with hope. And if whatever you're doing does not produce hope in some way, shape, or form, then back up the truck and go, okay, what, what am I doing and how am I doing it? It's going to be very hard for somebody to focus on the L.A. Times and the kingdom of God at the same time. So if they can tell that you're focused in two places at the same time, then don't tell them the kingdom of God is the only thing that matters when half your preaching is about something else. I know that there, there's rationalization. People can go, oh, they're, no, they're really related and all this, or that it's a relevance thing or whatever. Hope is always relevant. Always relevant, okay? Um, so... All right, uh, I need to chill on that till tomorrow, so we can go. Ooh, this last one. Um, this is one I really want to hit tomorrow. Grow your own food. The future belongs to the farmers, man. Let me tell you what I mean. If you find yourself going, I don't know, we just can't seem to get a preacher. I don't know where we can find qualified people. Uh, we have nobody to help lead us in worship. We have nobody to serve uh, communion. We have nobody at the doors to welcome people. We have nobody to do this, that, and the other. Um, so we're looking for to hire a minister who will do those things. Mm. No. Grow your own food. There is not nearly enough pipeline. Uh, supply demand is um, astronomically against you being able to hire people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the colleges are not putting out as many as they used to, um, period. And the answer to you, most of your roles, if you have eyes to see, is probably already on your building. Now, some of you may be thinking about your people and going, no way, <laughs> our people are terrible, or our people are mean, or our people are this or the other. And I'm going to tell you some stories tomorrow of how we try to do this um, and, and really try to become a church where, like happened this summer, we had enough homegrown interns that wanted to do it. We actually had to turn one away, and we sent her to a different church. So we're now we're a food provider to other churches and because we're growing our own food, but it, it took years and it's finally starting to bear a little bit of fruit uh, and so I'm going to walk you through tomorrow how we did that and, and so it's not a matter of please hear me this is not put a sign up sheet in the lobby <laughs> okay that goes with this the actual gifts of the body okay the priesthood of all believers um, <laughs> does not mean that uh, everybody does the same thing it means that the gifts of the body of Christ are unleashed. The actual gifts. That's why you have Paul talking about it. We all have different roles to play. Part of the same body. But you're a hand, you're an eye, you're a foot, you're this and that and the other. Um, so I really want to talk about um, <clears throat> if you're trying to hire people, the over-under uh, these days is probably, I would say, if, you, if you're using a committee to hire, it's a year and a half. That's the over-under point. If you're not using a committee, a year. And uh, when you do it, I want you to think about how expensive it is. You're not just going to pay the salary. You're going to pay to move them here. And because the batting average of success is low, you're going to be hiring another person to replace them in a couple of years. And that gets extremely expensive, time-consuming. Uh, it creates a lot of squabbles because people disagree about who you should have picked. And if you can grow your own food, man, I'm telling you that you will, you will not starve. It's cheap. You, you will um, have people who already love your church, already buy your vision and mission, and, um, and you're not grabbing, you're not creating an empty chair by hiring from somebody else. 
It's not wrong to hire outside. I'm just saying it's a beautiful thing to actually add body count to the realm of ministry as opposed to taking, you know, pilfering a, another church across town, getting their preacher to come over, their worship guy to come over, um, or, or whatever, okay? Um, I also want to say to those of you in smaller churches, you're better at this than bigger churches are. So if you're looking at a, at a mission point and a strategy in a way that you can be a blessing to the kingdom, this is one way. Uh, I'm a product of a small church. Every guy you see on that platform came from a small church. Every one of them. And there's reasons why. Uh, Jonathan Storman came from a, a church that was like four or something. I mean, like he, he barely, you know, he was homeschooled and everything. I mean, he, he's... But, but you get up, Colin Packer, uh, you know, I met him when he was in, he did Smothers earlier today. I had him as an intern at Highland Oaks, but before that I met him when he was in sixth grade, and I was his dad's intern at La Mesa, a church of 150 people. That was my first internship, and then a bigger one after that, a bigger one after that, so I was kind of moved through and could see how different things worked. But all those guys uh, that you see, Josh Ross, I mean, they're all, they all came from small churches, and there's a reason for that, and I'm going to start rolling some of that out for you tomorrow, okay? Our time is getting away from us, so I'm going to hit pause right here. And then, so tomorrow, just so you know, I'm going to take like two or three questions. So if you have a question, give me a second. I just ask you to be succinct so we can get in two or three instead of none. Uh, I'm going to go back and drill down on some of these, and then we'll hit these these last ones. If I were going to give you, dude, this, uh, oh, man, generosity, giving. Some of you are going to go, what? That's so lame. Our people are doing the best they can. No, they're not. They're not even close. Uh, and so tomorrow I will uh, illustrate that in very real detail and um, give you some strategies on how to, how to increase your giving and things like that and, and make it a healthier process than, hey, we have a need, so let's go beg the church you know, for money. I'm going to give you times when I was really super aggressive and times that I really backed off and we tried different things. In New Vintage, we've never published giving numbers in the bulletin. Uh, we send out a quarterly financial report so people can see. Um, we actually don't even pass a plate anymore. We put boxes in the back. 75% of our giving is online. Uh, it's automated. Um, so, you know, um, I also want to tell you why, you're, why you don't want your per capita to be big. You want it to be small. Okay? Because if you have a high per capita giving rate, that means you have a lot of old Christians. If you're growing and you're bringing in younger people, that should be going down. Now, there's a certain point you don't want it to go too too low. So somewhere between 12 to $18 a head is where you want it. But if you're at 40 or 60, um, that's a good sign that you got a lot of old Christians there and you're not growing. You're probably going backward. So don't don't applaud yourself for, um, hey, look at our per capita too quickly. Um, so anyways, we're going we're to do all that. And then this is about techniques are good, grid is better. It's a lot about just toughening it out. And I'm going to talk about developing grit uh, tomorrow, too. So hope you come back. A um, couple questions real quick before we go. If not, then you're like ready for lunch. That's cool. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right.